0: Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate.
1: Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org.
0: I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. To Chef Story. And today. And today we are broadcasting from the International Culinary Center, but for the very first time, we are live streaming this. So let's give it to the crowd here and to everyone watching us on live stream. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, go, for it. go for it. All right, are you ready to rumble with Eric Repair? I can't believe that for the inaugural of doing this live streaming, we were able to get Eric here. Uh, It's an unbelievable um, honor at the school for Eric to be here. Uh, For those three people in the world that don't know who Eric is, um, he is probably one of the most celebrated uh, chefs in the world. Uh, aside from the uh, extraordinary accolades of Three Star Michelin, uh, number 24 on the 50 greatest restaurants in the world, he's won almost every Beard Award, including the Outstanding Restaurant in the United States. Um, he's written six books, the last one a memoir, which we'll get into. Um, he, But he is one of... You know, you you say about some people they are gentle giants. I think Eric defines gentle giant. You're a giant in our industry, and I want to crack it open and find out how everyone can be as gentle and as uh, beautiful a person as you are. Eric, thank you for coming today.
2: Well, thank you. I'm going to come back (laughs) again and again.
0: (laughs) So um, on the show... Uh, first of all, I want to say Vive la France! It's Bastille Day, yes. and um, it is a great um, honor of mine. They're, the French chefs have been so generous to this country. I don't think we would have our Thomas Kellers, you know, yeah. and um, other young American chefs, the Jonathan Waxmans, if they didn't go to France. And you guys show us how to how to do it. But um, we're going to talk about you this is all about you okay. and um, thank you <laughs> i start i start these chef stories with delving into someone's childhood and usually it, i don't know much about it but you are the bravest soul to have written 32 yokes can i ask how many people here have read this okay a lot of you are in for a treat it, you you're going to run well we have some that we're going to sell in the back uh but this book is so brutally honest and so startling. Um, I I don't even know where to begin. Um, let me just say to everyone that this wonderful man was born in the south of France and he has the disposition of a Provencal, you know. But his childhood was um, very challenged for a lot of reasons, and. The the first thing I want to ask you is, how could you write the memoir? I mean, it it was so raw, Mm. and it's so surprising to a lot of people. How could you be so honest?
2: Well, I thought when you write a memoir, you're supposed to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I was very naive, I guess. (laughs) But uh, the truth is that Random House pursued me for two years to write the memoir, and I was not very excited about writing my memoir, because I thought I had, I had no story to say. I didn't think I have anything inspirational. But after two years, I finally wrote on a piece of paper um, the chronology of my life as a, as a young child and a teenager and so on. And I realized that actually I have interesting things to say, and, and I have um, an inspirational legacy. Um, and, and 32 yolks is, is exactly what it is.
0: So when you were... You were an only child. Yes. And you were very close to your mother.
2: Very it, close to my mom.
0: Yeah. And...
2: Uh, not the mama's boy.
0: Not Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. You get this in the book. Um, but you were very, very sad and angry from a very early age. Yes. And where, I, where did that come from, do you think?
2: Well... I was born very lucky in the south of France, in Antibes. My parents were very successful. Um, They were living in Saint-Tropez in the 1970s. Saint-Tropez and the 70s, Brigitte Bardot era, was challenging for couples. And um, overnight, my my life changed because my parents uh, didn't make it, they they divorced. My my mother remarried. and my father as well, and then he passed away when I was ten. Uh, therefore, uh, my my life became very difficult uh, as a young child because uh, I didn't ac- and I didn't accept very well um, the fact that my mother would remarry someone that I really dislike and who was disliking me as much as I did. Uh, and it was war at home, and uh, uh, I had no no place to really um, to go. Uh, the only peaceful moment, inspirational moment of the day or or of my life uh, was at the table. Um, So we had, of course, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and that was, for me, a moment of great pleasure and peace. Uh, My mother, who was a very successful woman, would make sure that she would wake up at 5 or 6 a.m., prepare breakfast, and then she would prepare lunch and dinner. And she would prepare appetizer, main course, dessert. And that will be served at home on different china patterns uh, with different uh, uh, tablecloths uh, and so on. Um, so that was a really, real experience. And that, that meal will bring peace um, and the family together. And I, I thought that actually every child in the world was eating uh, the way I was eating. Uh, like that, so, so, so refined. Mm. Um, I had two grandmothers also who knew I had a passion for food, mostly eating because when you are five, six years old, you're not necessarily uh, a chef. (laughs) Uh, You you don't know you're going to become a chef. And, and they knew I love food. So they would cook for me soul food. One grandmother was Italian. So part of, of my education was soul food from Italy. And the other one was from Provence. And my mother was inspired by the chefs uh, of the 70s, Nouvelle Cuisine, and it was Paul Bocuse and Michel Gerard and all those chefs. So I had soul food and very refined food at the same time. And and it created my passion for eating first, then for what we call in French l'art de la table, and then I find my, my way um, going to the kitchens, of course.
0: So one of the things that struck me in the book, in a very raw way was how angry you were at five or six when your parents got divorced and how you rebelled and how you were really tough on, you know, on yourself and with the world around you. And digging back there, digging down deep, did that make you a stronger person?
2: Well, first of all, it was, I mean, to be tough was a matter of survival because i was at war with a very uh, abusive stepfather Mm -hmm. uh, abusive verbally and physically in the sense that he was beating me and so on um and i was very young i was six seven eight years old i was at war with him and um actually he should have never done that because you you all know that if you go at war with a with a young kid, you're going to lose the battle. And and, and I, I won, but still. Uh, I was very angry, it's true. Very angry, very um, sad at the same time. Mm. Uh, but when, when I started to cook as, as, as a student, finally, suddenly, I started to have passion, and I overcame that anger. Although, um, until, until my arrival to America, uh, I was... Um, a a, a guy with a a bad temper uh, very bad temper and actually it's not in a book but when i started in in uh, in the u.s i was this young chef who had those tantrums and was breaking plates on the floor and screaming at the cooks Um, and i realized that um, well i realized first that they were leaving me (laughs) The team was not staying on board, and I was miserable as well. And I sat down, and I, re- I reflected on my life, and I said, you know, I have to change my way of, of living. And um, at that time, uh, the Dalai Lama was awarded the Nobel Prize of, uh, for Peace. Um, his speech of ac- acceptance became a great inspiration, and I was attracted to Buddhism. And and then uh, that became my, spir- my spirituality, my guidance, and today it's what makes me um, someone who's very peaceful, very happy. Um, you know, it, it changed me, we, and I We bring need
0: a- to we need to explore this more because I, I can't go n- deeper into the childhood. You, you can read this in the book, but it's it's mesmerizing, and to know you. And when I said gentle giant before, I wasn't kidding. He's so, such a gentle. Um, man uh, but the abuse continued Where, after you went to cooking school a little bit you know they they steal you in cooking school and especially in france um we don't nearly do it here the way they do it in france but when you went to Robichon, you know used to you went to to d'argent and then you went to robuchon that struck me as an abusive mentally abusive place as well and did you know the and physically abuse you had no life right so how how does one stand that
2: well um explain let, your let, day
0: at robichon let, and and well, how it was well actually
2: i i think uh, joel robichon was an exception to the rule uh, because a lot of the kitchens in france at that time were very violent uh in, in terms of like physical abuse again like being beat up being screamed at um Joel Robuchon was against violence, and he was not a screamer himself. What was very difficult was the hours that we put into the kitchen. Um, We were 25 cooks uh, serving 40 covers every lunch and every dinner, and because his uh, demands were very um, precise and and the food that we were cooking was so amazing at the time, um, we would work about... 16 to 18 hours a day. But Joël Robuchon kitchen was an exception to the rule. Other kitchens, you will see pans flying, uh, plates being broken, chefs uh, screaming, uh, uh, kids being kicked in a butt and and, and so on. So when I went to Joël Robuchon, I was very inspired in a a way. At the same time, Joël Robuchon was very demanding on himself. very demanding on his team as well, of course. And um, we were all on board with him. We all w- wanted to create something unique and amazing with his guidance. Um, he had this tremendous vision and he was considered at the time in the 1980s and even today he's considered the best chef in the world or one of the best chefs in the world. We knew it was a, a price to pay. He was working the hours with us. He was not staying home watching TV and and, and calling us. Um, but he was this kind of very rigorous, very serious, um, demanding professor. And when he was not satisfied... You will look at his face, and you will be terrified, and you would not have to talk. You know, that you have those teachers sometimes. You just, you know, like they terrorize the class, and they haven't said anything yet. Um, I don't know if you know them, <laughs> <laughs> but but Joël Robuchon was like that. When he, he when he will get frustrated, he will he will not get the quality that he wants. You could feel the pain in in him, and it will be contagious, and then he will start to tell ask you. Why? Why you did that? Why? Why did you sabotage the dish with the lobster? You have no respect for the lobster, and then he will say, "But you don't care about the craftsmanship. You don't care about the artistry of cooking." And then he will say, "You don't care about the clients," and that will really hurt you because we all care. But that was the way of of Joël Robuchon. in terms of, of, of teaching, and it was for sure terrorizing at times because you didn't want to be the one who sabotaged the dish and and disappointed the master. But again, I, I like to to make a point here that he was absolutely against violence, and that was a plus.
0: Yes, there is not. I was terrified reading that portion of the book, and uh, we're going to we're going to take a little break.
1: Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the museum of food and drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. And we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing flavor, making it and faking it. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami. And the Willy Wonka inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MOFAD Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at MOFAD.org.
0: Now we're back. Welcome back. <laughs> You're watching Chef's Story and listening to Chef's Story. And today we're broadcasting from the ICC, International Culinary Center, and have an extraordinary guest, Chef Eric Repair of Le Bernardin. I think I even forgot to say your restaurant when I introduced you because I, I just think the whole world knows. Um, so let me get, let me get into this formation of chefs. Uh, we are a cooking school, and um, it's it strikes me. You were just saying eighteen hours. I, I just remember you said you get home and you could hardly even sleep because you had to get up to get back there. Eighteen hours a day, six six days a week. No, five, five day, days. Five a week. days, yes. Um, so that had to put in you a certain level of not only discipline but steeliness and and mastery. And is there any place in the world that still does that? And do you think that we are not going to have chefs of your caliber since that's not you know people don't go through that
2: um, well we were doing 18 hours a day through true and we were um, extremely focused and dedicated I, I believe that you can have the same focus the same dedication the same passion without doing 18 hours and, and the laws have changed since uh, and and I don't know if in Europe some, some kitchens have their employees for 18 hours in a restaurant. I, I doubt that. Um, at the time, it was common practice. It was not necessarily specific to Joël Robuchon. It was every, in almost every restaurant where you were going very early, you were serving lunch. Sometimes you were having a, a little break to go have an espresso or two or three or four. And then you will come back wired with the espresso. <laughs> and, and you will go through the night. And by the time you go home, after cleaning the kitchen, because at, at that time in, in Europe, uh, and I don't know today, but after cooking, you were cleaning the stove and you were cleaning everything and the hood system and everything. Uh, so we, we, we were very young. We were strong physically. Uh, and the fact that we had two days off um, was, I think, uh, a good thing because on six days you, you wouldn't be able to do that.
0: Can I ask how much you were paid back then?
2: Um, I don't remember exactly the salary. It, it was in francs, but I remember that actually in the kitchen of Robichon we were very happy because we were paid above average compared to other restaurants. So he was very respectful of uh, his employees And he wanted to make sure we were not making a fortune, for sure. And we were young kids, and we were there to learn. We were there because we knew he was um, going to be a great teacher, and it was a very special place. But at the same time, he was making sure that we could pay our rent. Uh, We were eating at a restaurant, but he wanted to make sure that we had a decent salary. A
0: decent life. So uh, can you also talk about how long you stayed at one station before you moved on, especially coming out of culinary school. What was yeah. the road? Because you learned some basic things in culinary school but your real yes. life were...
2: It, I mean, I'm going to talk about La Tour d'Argent now. Yeah. Um, so La Tour d'Argent was a very different than, than the kitchen of Joël Robuchon. Um, with the volume, we were doing much more covers, and, and we were as many... We had maybe 25 cooks for 100 and something covers. Um, and in La Tour d'Argent... Uh, I'm sorry, Dorothy. Can you ask me again? <laughs> when you came
0: out of, yeah. you know, um, how long did, would you be uh, put at a station to yeah. to work? It, because people want to, you know, go up the ladder so fast here.
2: What d'Argent. did it take when Tour you Tour came d'Argent. out of
0: culinary school?
2: So after when I went to La Tour d'Argent, I was um, in a station in a fish station for six months. And then they started to move me and they put me in a uh, meat station and then the vegetable station. I stayed only one day in a pastry pastry station because I ate 25 (laughs) strawberry tartelettes and and (laughs) and I was sent back to the kitchen. (laughs) And therefore, I'm a very bad pastry chef. Uh, But La Tour d'Argent had had, um, this tradition of making sure that as soon as you were comfortable, you were moved to another station. In Joel Robuchon kitchen, it was a little bit different. He would keep you a very long time because in his mind, um, for you to master the, the station and the sauce and every aspect of the recipes, it was a long process. Uh, therefore, uh, my first stint at Robichon uh, was one year in a garde-manger. I one ma- year
0: in garde-manger? Yes. And that's uh, sort of salad prep for people out there that don't know, you know, and, and appetite I mean, that's, oh, is that frustrating for you?
2: No, because it was so much to learn. We were changing the menu all the time. He was changing techniques all the time. He was uh, throwing new challenges at us all the time. The seasons were passing by. And actually, it makes sense because if you think about it, uh, you change the menu with the season four times. It's always something new for three months. Then I did my mandatory military duties uh, at the time. Uh, When I came back, I went back to Joël Robuchon and I stayed in a fish station for two years. Two years? Two years, and then uh, I asked him to send me somewhere and he sent me to America.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me go back to two years in Garmonger and a year in 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 station. two two years in the fish Mm -hmm. station. What is technique? I mean, I, and I take this from a t- in teaching in a school. Somebody learns how to hold a knife or or do a julienne or something like that, and they think they mastered a technique. What is mastering a technique?
2: Mm. Well, it goes in stages, and it's true that knife skills it's a technique, but it's the most basic technique that you will ask a, a cook to master the knives um it's like boiling water i mean it's, the, it's um the ultimate in cooking is when you achieve the level of being the associate and in between mastering your knife skills and becoming a associate it takes years um years because you learn how to um of course how to cut how to cook all the techniques baking um sauteing poaching roasting and and so on um you learn uh, the meat, you learn the fish, you learn how to cook vegetables, uh, you learn presentations, you learn how to um, finally uh, plate uh, properly and uh, hot food, delicious food on a clean plate in a timely manner. But when you at, when you arrive at the sauce, that's the, really the, the end of the training before you, you become a sous-chef, which is management. Um, the saucier is the most difficult um, thing to learn because uh, flavors, and you all know that, uh, do not exist in terms of, they're not tangible. You cannot touch two inches of rosemary flavor. You cannot touch uh, three inches of uh, mint, sage, garlic. It, it doesn't exist. It's all in the mind. It's like it's like music. Um, the saussier has to catch the flavors into a liquid, which can be as thin as water or 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 rich, I mean, depending what it is, but he has to catch the flavors, and he has to uh, make sure that those flavors are going to be stable, vibrant, um, during uh, the the service, which could be from 12 to 2, or at night, uh, during the the, the night shift. Uh, That's really, really something difficult, because it requires a lot of craftsmanship, but then it requires a certain instinct that you have developed over the years. And um, some people have it, and, and some, some cooks don't, don't, are not really good at it, and it's almost impossible to teach that. It's like, uh, if I can make an analogy here, it's like teaching piano to someone, and someone's going to play piano, and, but he will never be able to maybe compose great music or, or pl- play piano with soul. Um, so the saussier is, is, is the, the crown on the head of the chef or the cook.
0: What is the most technically diff- difficult dish you have ever made?
2: Many. Um, you know, sometimes very simple dishes are the most difficult. You know, let's say you have, you have a piece of fluke, you have a lime, you have an onion, a piece of, a bit of cilantro, and, um, You have a knife and a cutting board. Um, You don't have too much room for error. And, of course, you're going to make a ceviche. But if you're very good, you're going to make a delicious ceviche. If not, you're going to make something that is a piece of fish cut. So explain to me,
0: what is the technique of a ceviche that's so... What's a masterful technique in ceviche?
2: Well, the quality of the ingredient is key. Mm -hmm. So the fish obviously has to be fresh because... As you know, if you start cooking with mediocre ingredients, you can imagine at the end of the process how mediocre your food is going to be. Uh, so something very, very fresh. Um, very good instruments because the cut is very important. Um, I think actually the, the Japanese master the cut uh, and, and can teach the entire planet um, how important the cut is with the knife because depending on uh, uh, how dull your knife or how sharp it is, um, and the angle of the knife, you will get a different texture from from the fish. Um, then you have to um, you use your instincts. I mean, of course you may do a julienne of cilantro. You may you may squeeze the lime. You have salt. You have uh, probably other ingredients in in your pantry. But um, suddenly um, it's when you're you're Talent will shine or will not shine. It's putting the exact, by instinct, the exact uh, seasoning, the exact amount of um, aromatics in the dish that will elevate the fluke and will not kill the flavor of the fluke or or uh, or basically uh, make it uh, dry and, and, and testless. tasteless. Uh, all of that is, it. I mean, I think to to achieve that. You, you have to practice for a lot of years and you have to have this kind of like a um, gift in you.
0: How long do you think it took you to be ready to be a chef?
2: I'm, I'm still progressing every day. <laughs> but um, I will say until you master the sauce, you're, you're, not, you're not prepared to to become a sous-chef um and it takes years to master sauce uh, you and, and even today i mean the sauce that i really know and uh, that i have sometimes created challenge me but i always find a way to by instinct again um, to to get what i want but it takes five six seven years then being a sous chef i think is very important you learn how to um manage a team and I cannot say you're gonna be the sous chef and you guys are going to listen because if you don't know what you're saying, if you give the wrong orders after many mistakes, the team will not follow you. You will get respect only when you have mastered um, everything and when you give an information or you, you, you ask someone to give you something, you have to be right. The team has a very low tolerance for mistakes. When you have master um, being a sous chef, which take a couple of years, three, four, four years, then you become a chef. So you're on your own, and it takes time for you to find your style and you find your pace and you find your um, a certain uh, comfort uh, in that position. So I will say, if you really are looking to become um, a good chef, in average is a minimum ten years. Um, and and it's still a work in progress and that's the beauty of it i mean you you'd never done
0: you never d- so you cook what we call haute cuisine you know in the in and the the great restaurants the, the three star michelin restaurants and how much technique do you need for haute cuisine versus just a simple restaurant or do you need a difference in you know, what is what is the difference? Is is there a higher calling being
2: Haute Cuisine? Is it... It's a different exercise. And I have a lot of friends of mine who are um, cooking in, in bistros and casual restaurants and who have great ingredients, uh, cook amazing food, delicious food. It's a little bit different than um, what we do in fine dining. In fine dining... Um, very often, I mean, what makes a difference is, first of all, it's not just about craftsmanship and duplicating a dish that could be on many menus. Um, it, so it, it involves creativity. Creativity is what brings artistry in cooking. If not, it's just craftsmanship. Uh, and fine dining, uh, you have to be very consistent. Uh, constantly innovating and being consistent is a huge challenge. Um, and I think this is the main difference because you can eat something very good in a in a casual restaurant, but in fine dining you will eat something hopefully as good, but um, in a consistent way and always having someone pushing the envelope to be at the head of the curve. You basically, um, in terra incognita, you create and And sometimes you make mistakes and you come back, but you you are at the head head of the the curve.
0: Knowing. If I may, I'm I'm sorry. Uh,
2: But but fine dining is also about um, creating an experience that is very unique. And that requires not only the kitchen to be excellent. uh, It's about being in a surrounding that will help to create this experience that will be memorable for years. Um, The dining room staff uh, has a big role in that as well, Uh, reading the mind of the client, knowing if you're coming because you are a foodie or it's your birthday or you're in business or you're in love or you're going to get engaged. I mean, it's it's a holistic experience, if I may. And um, ultimately... People come to fine dining restaurant most of, of the time to have this kind of wine, one of a kind experience. Um, and you go to other restaurants to eat and have a good time, but it's a, a little bit different.
0: Well, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, I've got another question. This is Eric Repair of Le Bernardin of five cookbooks. You too can go home and try to make the fluke ceviche. <laughs> um, but I'm going to ask. I'm going to look at some of my questions because I, there's some really good ones here, and I don't want to. But. What were you thinking when you came to the United States, I mean, coming out of uh, Joël Robuchon's kitchen and landing at Jean-Louis Paladin, right, in yes. Washington? Yes. What year was it? What nice. were your first thoughts? What had you expected from America? And what, were, what were your first reactions?
2: It was in 1989. Uh, well, First of all, I asked Joël Robuchon to send me somewhere. So he said, where do you want to go? And I said, Brazil. And then he, he laughed. He's like, I'm not sending you on vacation. Um, then I said, Spain. He said, but you grew up close to Spain. So so." then I said, well, anywhere you want me to go. And he said, I, I, th- I have an idea. You should go to to Jean-Louis Paladin in Washington, D.C. So I came in America in 1989 without speaking a word of English, um, <laughs> naively thinking that it will be okay. Uh, it wasn't okay. <laughs> uh, it was really hard. Jean-Louis Paladin was a French chef, and I thought he would speak to me in, in French. He spoke to me in English, and, and in bad English. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so th- that th- the language was extremely challenging. Uh, coming from a very stru- structured kitchen, with 25 cooks, like we had in in, in Joël Robuchon, and coming to America and, and having a, a, a nice kitchen, but six or seven cooks, and um, I had to be more uh, versatile. Versatile in a kitchen uh, was a challenge. Um, the pace of the ch- of the kitchen was a challenge. The ingredients were challenging. They were not the same. Um, Not like they were bad because Jean-Louis Paladin had always great ingredients, as as we all know. He was a pioneer with Alice Waters, going to the farmers and bringing um, vegetables from them or or going to talk to the fishermen and and people who forage mushroom and and, and so on. So the quality of the ingredients was good, but they were slightly different. Um, The pace of the service was very different. Uh, I didn't understand the tickets. Um, he was screaming at me, and, and he, I think he was saying "God damn it," but I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so <laughs> I was uh, culturally, I was a bit lost. Uh, so it, it was not that easy. I thought coming out of the kitchen of Robichaud in Paris and, and coming to America would be um, not a piece of cake. But I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show off a little bit in those kitchens, and not at all. I mean, you. You have some very good cooks in America, as we all know, but uh, in in the kitchen of Jean-Louis, he had those ladies. um, He had three ladies coming from South America who were doing the same thing year after year. They were experts, and they were much better than I was uh, at at certain uh, things that they were doing. Uh, So that that was very humbling, my arrival in the U.S.
0: Um, How long were you in that kitchen?
2: I was with Jean-Louis for two years.
0: And um, at the end of two years, what, what was your first impression of America? Let's get off the food thing. You came here. you probably you know you were in the land of Bridget Bordeaux, and then you go to Washington, the politics of Washington and Watergate.
2: Yes, I mean, Washington for a for 24year- old is a bit boring. Um. (Laughter)
0: Probably for a fifty-six-year-old
2: too. But, <laughs> but um, my dream was to come to New York, and and Jean-Louis knew that. Um, so I was coming to New York on the weekends or when I had days of, days off, and actually I was coming in this neighborhood. Um, and after two years, my visa had to be renewed and, and something. I mean, I don't remember technically what it was, but it was an opportunity for me to, to move on, and Jean-Louis helped me. Um, I, I went to David Boulet briefly. Uh, I left, by the way, Jean-Louis, I was a line cook. I left him as a, as a sous-chef, thank God. Um, and and then I came uh, to New York. I worked with David Boulet for a s- few months, and then I started in 91 with um, Gilbert, Gilbert. Lecoz at Le Bernardin.
0: Um can you tell people about Gilbert?
2: Yes. So Gilbert Lecoz came in America in... in uh in the mid,
0: 85.
2: Mid, he came previously to that, and he didn't find the ingredients that he liked, and therefore decided not to open a restaurant. And at that time, I think basil was something very exotic. You find it only dry, it was not fresh. Uh, he was in shock when he saw the quality of the fish at the fish, fish market. The fish was not handled properly, um, he, he was a purist, and then he waited until 1985, uh, when finally he started to see some some improvements uh, and, and find ingredients that were um, available uh, on the market that were insp- inspiring to him. And in 1986, he opened Le Bernardin, and Le Bernardin was a revolution, I mean, New York Times, Gave the Le Bernardin four star immediately and uh, it was, I think, the first time that um, a seafood restaurant was uh, fine dining. Until then, it, it didn't exist. What didn't.
0: did Le Bernardin bring to America at that time?
2: Well, the experience of fine dining um, from France and in terms of cooking, um, it was an homage to the beautiful products that we have in America Um, Seafood, because Le Bernardin is a seafood restaurant. And uh, I think the the press and the the clients were in shock by how amazing and simple and delicious the food was at Le Bernardin.
0: So what position did you start in?
2: So in 91, Le Bernardin was already a success since 1986. Um, I started, I was the chef de cuisine of Gilbert. And he was letting me do a lot of mistakes, always encouraged me. And, um, and I worked for three years with him. And in 1994, he passed away and I took his position.
0: What did you learn from him?
2: From him, I learned a lot of things. Um, I learned um, how to manage a team, how to be inspirational, creativity, um, discipline, Uh, Yeah, I mean, all the qualities that chefs must have. Humility as well, because he was extremely humble as well. Um, So Jean-Louis Paladin, well, I'm gonna tell you, I mean, like La Tour d'Argent, I learned the classics and the basics. Joël Robuchon, I learned technique, rigor, um, precision. Then when I went with Jean-Louis Paladin, Jean-Louis Paladin was an artist, Um, a little bit hippie like that. And the difference was another analogy. It's like leaving a Catholic school and going to a Woodstock concert. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. So basically, Jean-Louis opened my mind in terms of creativity. And then Gilbert Lecoz allowed me to um, be creative, use all the the techniques that I I had learned with um, Joël Robuchon, and he taught me how to be a chef, how to be a leader in a restaurant, how to uh, have a team that follow your orders, and, and how to uh, be, of, of course, um, um, how do you say, um, uh, rele- not relevant, uh, when you don't lose money. I mean, you have to... Yes, yes, you have
0: to be a, a responsible business person. Exactly. Yes, exactly, yeah. Um, so y- you were a young cook, and you know young cooks go from kitchen to kitchen and sous chefs, and you and you help them in their career by going. What is it that you would like people who worked in your kitchen to say about you, in your kitchen? Not necessarily your you, Eric, as a person, but in your kitchen. What, what kind of kitchen is it? Because every kitchen is different.
2: Well... I want the cook to learn as much as they can at Le Bernardin, of course. And um, I want them to be inspired to be sh- um, taking risks in their career and to lead teams by being kind. Because I learned over the years with my mistakes that a cook, a waiter who's shaking like that, not, is not going to do a better job than someone who's happy to be in a kitchen and is inspired to cook. So I, I, I would like for the cooks who live Le Bernardin to, um, to tell me that.
0: Do you have a passion for fish or could you easily, happily have a restaurant with a, a, a more varied um, offering?
2: I have passion for fish. It's no doubt. I mean, I, I, I would have left. <laughs> um, it, it, uh, I, I definitely have a passion for fish. And I have to say also, in, during my entire career, I always uh, ended up in a fish station and spent a lot of time in, in a fish station. Uh, even with Jean-Louis Paladin, I spent half of my time uh, cooking meat and being a sous-chef and half of my time uh, cooking fish. And it's really something that I enjoy and love. And it's very different than cooking meat. Cooking meat, it's something very sensual. Um, And like Jean-Louis Paladin used to say, you cook with with your guts. Um, And cooking fish, you have to be a technician. You have to be very attentive. If you you cook a stew and you leave the stew five minutes extra, it's okay. Um, A steak is going to be forgiven. A roasted chicken, same thing. A piece of fish... If you leave the fish in a pan for 10 seconds, extra, the fish is is ruined sometimes. It will will be overcooked, it will be dry, it will be um, uh, tasteless, and so on. Uh, And I like that challenge. I like the challenge of being extremely focused, extremely uh, cautious, of course, because, as we all know, a filet of fish is very fragile when you handle it. It's not like handling a chicken again. Not like is is anything wrong with cooking chickens, um, but I I love the challenge of of cooking seafood, and and I love that you're always on a thin line, but um, a good cook should master both cooking meat or or vegetables and meat, uh, of course, and cooking fish because it's different. But you cannot be a good chef if you don't master both aspects.
0: Um. Chefs are generational. I've noticed that in my 33 years here. That, um, you know, the, when I started the school in '84, you had Paul Bocuse and Roger Verger, right? Yes. And then the Young Turks with Daniel Boulou, right? And and uh, and today, you know, we have probably two more generations of chefs. Somebody said to me, I said, oh, you mean a young, young chef like David Chang? They go, ah, no, he's not young. <laughs> he's middle-aged. No, the young chefs are uh, Jeremiah Stone and, you know, Fabi. And uh, and I found that amusing that, you know, D- David's no longer a young chef, you know. and so I'm, I'm ready
2: to retire. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who are there young chefs that inspire you? Who are, wh- I'm, you know, I'm not going to ask a general question, what inspires you? I would love to know what what restaurants, or who are people cooking today? I mean, you get more and more, I don't mean rarefied in a um, in a big-headed sense, but the more and more you learn and, and perfect your technique, it must be harder to be excited and inspired um, by other people's cooking. I, I, maybe I have it wrong, but who where have you been lastly inspired and who today is cooking that
2: inspires you
0: all through the generations young cooks old cooks
2: well it's two kind of cooking is good cooking and bad cooking and of course you have some young cooks who are very talented and then you have some old cooks who are very talented and um if David Chang is old. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you who said it. It was a pretty
0: famous person themselves, but young.
2: <laughs> I, I see a lot of young chefs with a lot of talents, um, and they, they inspire me tremendously. Uh, the last very, very big experience in, that I had that really like, blew me away was uh, actually in California at Saison.
0: Oh, Josh Skeens. Yes. He's a graduate of French well, Culinary. See, Shout uh, out to Josh. So,
2: so Josh is, is, I mean, that was my last amazing, amazing meal.
0: What made it
2: amazing? Um, he has created a style that is very unique to himself. And um, I love the way he's playing with fire, the different intensity of uh, the fire, using different woods um, use uh, using instruments to to send some smoke from almond uh, uh, trees um, uh, a little bit like that to, uh, to the ingredient, and then another ingredient will be with much more smoke, uh, another one will be closer to the fire, another one will cook very um, far away from the fire, and, and, and uh, it does fermentation, um, experimentations. Whatever it touch is it's unbelievable. And um, that was my last, and it was not too long ago, um, and I was so impressed. I asked him to come to Le Bernardin and and, and do a, a, a lunch for the press. Really? Yes. Wait, has that and we happened gave him, already? We, we gave him our kitchen upstairs, and he, he brought his wood and everything. And um, yes, I mean it's it was very impressive to to look at that. Now another chef um, who will be more like my generation uh, is Australian, and um, uh, no, it's. Uh, is a sepia in in, um, Sydney. Um, His name is Ben, and um, he's an incredible chef as well. And he actually has a seafood restaurant.
0: And uh, what what kind of influence in that
2: food? Um, He has his own style again. Whatever he does, it's inspired by his experiences and um, he's, uh, he's using a lot of modern techniques, um, the heritage of molecular cuisine, but he integrated it in a more classical way, and it brings a lot of power and lightness to his food, exactly, exactly like José Andrés, who does that very well.
0: Yeah. Um, before I open it up, and we are going to open up to questions.
2: This kitchen is a real kitchen.
0: Yeah, it's hot. <laughs> I should
2: I bring my jacket. <laughs> it's hot in the
0: kitchen. Yes. Sorry, the water cooler today was worked overtime. Um, yeah. I do, you know, I, I I don't usually go to women's issues, but do you see? Can you see any discernible difference between a woman's touch as a chef, you know, in professional kitchens, and and men, you know, a male chef versus a female chef? Do you think there's any discernible difference?
2: No, I I, I don't see that. I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of. If you have something to lift and it's very heavy, very often, and this is it's nature, some guys are very strong and they can lift the pot very easily, and sometimes it's more challenging for some ladies because they're not built like the guys. I don't, but, I don't
0: mean working in the kitchen. Oh. Difference. I mean if you go to Dominic Kren's restaurant ah. or you know um, Anita Low, is there a, is there if. Can you see a femininity in the cook? Have you noticed as an eater of I great chefs, can you see a difference in the food? Or feel, you know, did you ever notice that?
2: No, I will say no. Um, because what is feminine in terms of flavors and what is masculine in terms of flavors, what is, you, you have some woman chef who cook with a lot of power some women chefs who are uh, very delicate in their combinations, but you have the same with some uh, male chefs uh, who are very delicate in their precision and, and uh, in creating harmony in the plate, and some chefs who have a lot of power and, and bring a, a lot of strength to, to, to the flavor that they develop. So I, I don't think we can generalize and say women cook a certain way and, and men will cook another way.
0: So before I open it up, my last question to you is if there... Do you have a wish for our profession um, of something happening either in the kitchen or in the restaurant industry that you feel can, can really contribute, be our generation's contribution to the food legacy?
2: Well, yes, I do, of course. Um... Whoever is going to have a restaurant, whoever is going to be hopefully successful uh, uh, in the future, hopefully will have some concerns about sustainability. Um, today is a cross-world, right? I mean, our planet, as we know, it's potentially endangered. Uh, some species are disappearing everywhere. Um, we see a lot of pollution. We see a lot of... Um, mishandling of pesticides and and things like that. And I hope that the next generation of chefs and and whoever is involved with food uh, uh, will have a conscience and and reverse what has been uh, a disaster for the last um, 30, 40 years. Um,
0: Do you think chefs have to be political? I mean, they can't just live in a bubble? It's
2: it's not about being a chef. It's about being a citizen of this, uh, about being a guest of this planet, and about leaving this planet in a better shape for the next generation, or not leaving it in a a better shape. Chefs, of course, have a voice today, thanks to the media, thanks to the attention that we're getting, and because we touch so many lives, therefore, we have a lot of power when we deliver a message. But whoever is involved with food, I hope will, uh, in the future, consider that a a big priority. Because it's easy to make a carrot taste good, in a sense. I mean, it's not easy, but it is. Um, But if the carrot um, had pesticides and polluted the water and the, the, the soil and the carrot was GMO and it has an impact potentially uh, on, on bugs in the future or on our, our health, if the chicken has growing hormones and, and, and antibiotics and um, is GMO as well and we're caring only about, about those kind of things, well, we're going to the abyss. If you like to eat a species of fish that is disappearing, and you don't care, well, that species will disappear and then it will be the next and the next and the next. So therefore, I think it's very, very important today to think about sustainability.
0: Bravo. Okay, (laughs) we got questions. Okay, we're gonna take questions from the audience, Trevor.
1: Uh, Chef, hello, thank you for coming. Um, so you spoke about sustainability, and uh, you've also spoke about uh, your love of seafood and all of that. And I feel like seafood is a big issue right now for as far as freshness from the ocean and availability and things like that. And farm-fresh uh, fish has become a lot more prevalent and is almost most chefs, I feel like, are leaning towards farm-fresh instead of, instead of the ocean because there's not as much... Maybe you're shaking Go your head. Um, I'm sorry, I
2: don't... Uh, <laughs> finish your question.
1: Okay. Um, so do you, do you feel like we should definitely stick to the ocean still or do you think that we should try to look for sustainable farming practices to try to rebuild the population in the ocean of certain seafood, wildlife?
2: It's two things. Some farms um, are starting to be um, envirom- environmental friendly uh, with good practices. But so far they are rare. Um, it's a lot of pollution coming from the farms. The quality of the fish is not comparable to wild fish. Uh, in America, the government is very proactive and, and a great inspiration to the world uh, by creating quotas of what you can co- catch, uh, seasons, by respecting some areas and so on. And um, we're starting to see more and more sustainability, especially um, in this country, and it's an inspiration to the world. I believe it's a middle way. We can have some good farm fish um, that taste good and that have good practices, uh, and we can also have some fish coming from the ocean. It's very difficult to monitor what's going on in the water because it's not as easy as look, looking at a field, but today we, we're starting to see some very good results.
0: You mentioned earlier uh, inviting chefs for media dinners, and I'm wondering if you can talk about why you do those, and um, second part, how do I get an invitation? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, when I go somewhere and and I'm really impress, and I see um, a lot of talent and a lot of enthusiasm in the kitchen, I always propose to give our private event, uh, the, the private room, uh, to create a small press lunch to sh- to show off the talent of the chef uh, and the philosophy of the restaurant. And we do that three, four times a year. Um, Next, you're on the list, starting today, you're on the list, next time, next time you'll be there. But I do that because um, I like to, to share my discoveries. Um, uh, when I'm very enthusiastic about promoting chefs who have talent. Uh, I'm, I have zero jealousy in me, and, and uh, I want them to be known, and I want them to, um, to uh, make people happy and, and to, to, to be able, able to express themselves.
0: Hi, Chef. Hello. Thank you so much for, for sharing that, so much of your personal life. And um, it was really super interesting to hear your point of view. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the book for a minute, if I may. And um, would love to hear you kind of speak about your process. And did anything surprise you about the, the book writing process in terms of creating a memoir, which was something different for you? Was there anything that you used in the kitchen that you were able, that you used in the kitchen that you were able to apply to book writing or, you know, how, how are they parallel? How are they different?
2: Um, so as you noticed today, my English is okay. <laughs> my writing is really bad <laughs> and therefore um, I worked with an amazing writer, Veronica Chambers, um, in collaboration. and. In my memoir, I understood right away that is a chronology. I mean, I was three years, four years old, five years old, and, and growing up. And that was easy for me to, to put on the paper. I realized also that I have an amazing long-term memory, a very poor short-term memory. I don't remember anything. Um, but long-term, I'm excellent. And um, I worked with Veronica uh, in, on that memoir by giving her information Uh, about what happened in my life. And then we decided together what what was important and potentially inspirational for the reader. And after that, I was going into the details, um, like tiny, tiny details, like the smell of the basil uh, in the market of uh, Nice uh, that I could smell 100 yards before uh, arriving at the market with precision. I I could go, I went into those details. But Veronica and I work as a team, we work hundreds, maybe thousands of hours. Um, It took us almost three years to do this tiny book. (laughs) (laughs) um, And and ultimately what I wanted at the end is to, that was the the guideline. I want everything in that book, it's to be inspirational Uh, for obviously people in our industry. That's the most obvious. Young people who have graduation papers in their hands and think they 're going to um, be an amazing contribution to, an, uh, to the world well they are beginners they 're going to have to to learn more and, and pay their dues and, and and so on and also even for couples i mean um, uh, divorce sometimes is a is a good thing for children and parents sometimes it's, it's very uh, bad and, and in my in my case it was it was very bad so it, it talks to everyone, um, basically. That was what I wanted 32 yolks to be.
0: Hi. Um, I think of you as sort of the champion of quiet, kind kitchens. Um, and I'm wondering what you would say to chefs that are currently trying to sort of transition their kitchens from the old model to the new, because I think sometimes it can be surprising for the people on the line when you stop screaming and all of a sudden you're kind and quiet. And I think a lot of chefs are afraid that people will take advantage of them if they transition like that rather than starting fresh. And wonder if you have advice on that transition?
2: The transition is not easy. And I tell you why, because um, I trained my sous chefs to be screaming for years. And then I trained them to not scream. And you cannot scream at someone for not screaming. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you cannot, so it's, it's, it's a very slow process if if you do a transition, but ulti- ultimately it works. Um, on the beginning, the sous chefs sometimes are, are not necessarily convinced that it's the right thing to do because obviously if you scream, you have an immediate re- re- response. If you kind and you say, listen, you burn the string beans. <laughs> Uh, but we don't say it like that. <laughs> but uh, you, uh, we have—I mean—in our kitchen, we have, we have a firm tone, a firm voice. Uh, when we say something, there's no room for discussion. But at the same time, um, it's no—it's no screaming. So um, I think the transition, if it—if if it is a transition in a kitchen, it's a s- slow process. But ultimately. Whoever is smart will see the benefits of it and, it, it, and the transition will happen. When we hire young chefs, it's a lot of qualities that we are looking uh, for. But the main quality that we are looking for is for... I mean, the most obvious are, of course, he has to be passionate, hardworking, clean, um, curious, uh, and, and many other qualities. But what I'm really looking for, it's for someone who can be a team player, because you are in, in a team, you are with um, waiters working with you, with obviously cooks around you, and if you are um, individualistic, selfish, um, and cannot work with the others, you you cannot really be a, a good cook, because in a restaurant, at one point, it's a crunch, it's the, every day, lunch and dinner, we have a challenging moment, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half hour, an hour, and um what i want is for the cooks to go help themselves in between themselves um i want them to go and 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 support part of the team and then the other part of the team come back and and it has to be this kind of um, uh, dynamic in the kitchen someone who cannot do that doesn't have a room in the kitchen and therefore for me is the the key element for hiring someone
1: Hi Chef, super excited to be even in the same room as you. Thanks so much for speaking with us. (laughs) Um, So I work for a quick service restaurant. Um, With the popularity of casual and quick service restaurants, where do you see the future of fine dining?
2: Where do I see the future of fine dining?
1: Yep.
2: Um, Fine dining has a bright future. Uh, And uh, 10 years ago, the media started to say that fine dining was dying, and I was scratching my head because you couldn't get a table at Jean Georges or at Perce or at Le Bernardin. Or da- and I was like, "What? What are they talking about?" Um, I never, I never find out. But fine dining, uh, <laughs> because because they're still there, um, and and if you call now and try to get a table at eight o'clock in any of them, even nine o'clock, you will not get a table. You have to call a friend who has a connection and, and, and so on. Um, but fine dining used to be um, different. In the 80s and previously to the 80s, it was a very formal experience. And um, some like the clientele liked that. And then it was a transformation. The younger clientele didn't want that formality. They wanted to be able to have a good time and laugh and be loud and and, uh, have interaction with the waiter and ask questions and have this experience. And that was the transition for fine dining. Um, Today, actually, with the millennials, we see that fine dining is really in high demand. Millennials go to restaurants and they want the experience of a lifetime. And... Only fine dining, I mean, not only, but fine dining can deliver that experience. Um, and, and therefore, it has changed and is still changing and it will always evolve. But fine dining is essential and it's, it's very vibrant, and, and uh, I, I think we're going to go far. Okay.
1: One more. Thank you. Hi, Shaf. So uh, we're obviously talking about your book and talking about your past. Um, you've accomplished so much, and at this point in your life, maybe from as someone from the outside looking in, you, you you're done. You've pretty much accomplished it all. But Thank in you, <laughs> um, but in Give your mind, <laughs> um, in your mind, what still wakes you up in the
2: morning and drives you? And in your mind, what do you still have left to accomplish? Mm. I think when you have the, the passion and the fire inside for what you do, it never stops. I mean, my in my experience, um, when I was 30, I was like, when I'm going to be 40, I'm going to be tired. I'm going to want to do something else. And then I was like, 50, forget it, I'll be retired. Well, I, I'm 51, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm looking at... Le Bernardin, and it's, it's where I'm, I, I am every day with the team. And every morning I walk to work from my house, and I have f- 45 minutes, 50 minutes to think about my day with the team and the mentoring process, how I'm going to work with them, how uh, I'm going to learn from them. Um, and it's extremely rewarding. As, as you, If you are in an industry, as you all know now, you don't come in our industry to become rich and famous because... It's one for one million who becomes rich and famous. You, you come to our industry because you have the passion for cooking or hospitality. Uh, you are creative. You want to uh, uh, make people happy. And that is so rewarding that no age will stop this passion in, in you if you have it.
0: Well, on that note... <laughs> Eric, it, it's truly been wonderful talking to you. I think that your honesty and your passion is—it's—it's um, it's more than inspirational because people people feel feel it. I mean, and you—you you, whether you know it or not, you have changed this world. Thank you so much for being here today. With
2: us. Thank you very much.